I'm Sally Ann from Map the Maze. I'm Patricia Falchetta from Social Living Solutions. Together we speak about nurturing neurodiversity. All the ways we can create a truly inclusive society. We aim to educate, inspire and create social change. Through sharing stories, experiences and research, we challenge current systems and open dialogue on what we can all do to create change. We hope you will join us on our journey. Nurturing Neurodiversity podcast. I'm Patricia Falchetta and I'm here together with Sammy Ann and today we're interviewing Harry Armitage. I originally met Harry Armitage in Canberra. He now uh, resides in Queensland and Harry and I very quickly became friends um, and we very very quickly became friends because we have similar values and also we do work in a similar area. So Harry works with people who have auditory processing issues. So Harry is known as the learning difficulty expert. He helps bright sensitive kids realize their full potential and thrive. But he also works with adults too. And I would say Harry works with people probably from the ages, and Harry can correct me if I'm wrong, from three right through to 100. Or two. Two right through to 100. So he can work with, with, with all ages. Um, but where Harry and I um, really um, came together was our work and our love of working with children and helping children to thrive in the education space, learn in the education space and really come into their own and really, really um, develop in self-confidence and self-esteem. So Harry um, is, as I said, is a sound therapist. And here in Canberra, he had um, a business called Listen for Life. And um, as I was saying, he does work with children through to adults. But my, um, apart from referring uh, clients to Harry when he was living here in Canberra and seeing great results with those clients, also have first-hand experience because Harry worked with my oldest son, Marco, and he worked with Marco when he was uh, 16 years old. And the results, so, um, as many of you who listen to this podcast will already know, um, my oldest son, Marco, is on the autism spectrum and he has ADHD and he also has uh, very sensory issues and auditory processing disorder. Now the work Harry was doing was so profound with Marco that I had Marco's teachers emailing me asking me if Marco had started taking ADHD medication because they could see the difference in his concentration in class and it was so marked that just out of the blue, because I didn't tell the school I was doing this, out of the blue I was getting these emails. So to me, that really, really validates the, the work that Harry does and it shows the significant um, difference that it makes. So welcome, Harry. Thank you for a wonderful introduction. I feel uh, warm and, warm and cosy inside <laughs> after your kind words. <laughs> I love that so much, Harry. Now, we've, we've just heard, um, as you said, a beautiful introduction from Patricia, but I would love to hear from you um, just a bit of, a, I suppose, an overview of, of how, how do you introduce yourself to people and, and how do you describe what you do? Well, I call myself the learning difficulty expert because most of my clients come to me with a difficulty around learning. And um, it's 
it's a simple it's a simple tag that explains what I do. Um, and what I tell people is that I like to, you know, move mums from frustration, stress and worry to the hope, relief and peace they so deserve. And what really excites me is getting these kids the grades they deserve and the friends they need in the playground. And really to reach their potential. And really, it, it, I, I mean, I saw a post on LinkedIn this morning which said, teaching kids, is in, teaching kids is important and very hard. Or maybe just said teaching kids is really hard. And I, I wrote a comment, well, actually, it's important, but it shouldn't be hard. You're in the wrong job if it's hard. <laughs> yeah. So I had a kid on... Um, I had a kid on Friday, my assessment up here, nonverbal, level two autism, ADHD, super hard. But it was okay. Well, okay. Um, and the key is really, my approach is really just to make mum, usually mum or dad, and the child, if the child is the client, make them feel safe. And if they feel safe, magic can happen. Anything can happen if we feel safe. I mean, I'm feeling safe with you guys. You're feeling safe with me. If we don't have that feeling of safety, then that's when the wheels fall off, our performance. And many of the clients that I see, without exaggeration, hardly ever feel safe. It's such an important point you make, Harry, because I really think that I mean, I was an ex-teacher. You probably don't know my story, but my background was in teaching. And I left the teaching industry fairly quickly after I entered it um, because I felt like I couldn't create that kind of space. I couldn't meet the needs of each child in a classroom when I had 20 to 30 kids in a classroom all at once needing different things. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, creating environments is, I think, the number one job of a teacher, a job of a parent as well, really in, in you know, in a wide range of, of places, workplaces, communities, um, the, the way that the environments are set up is such a vital part of how we interact with each other um, that, you know, automatically I feel connected to you, which is so lovely because um, it's, it's, it's something that we talk about a lot, I think Patricia and I, is, is how can we, um, really be changing the systems and the environments that we have automatically set up to make sure that more people feel included, more people feel safe, more people feel comfortable because that's really going to change the world, right? Yeah, we've got to get them out of fight and flight. So what do I do with this nonverbal kid? You know, I just follow my intuition, look at him, pull out a box of Lego. He's happy then. You know, after half an hour, he's happy. Initially, he's not, of course. So... You know, the other thing is to make it enjoyable, to make, you know, as a teacher, how hard is it to make it enjoyable? But you probably remember the teacher who made some of your days fun and you learned lots. Mm. Yeah, always. You learn so much more when you're actually engaged, when you're interested, when it's, when it's made fun. There's, there's definitely some key teachers that stick out for me um, in that. And, you know, bringing that day after day can sound exhausting, but, but actually once you start having fun with the kids, then you're having fun and it makes your job a whole yeah, lot easier exactly. as well. <laughs> yeah. exactly. 
Now, I would like to ask you, Harry, for people that have never heard of sound therapy before, can you give us a bit of an overview? Tell us what's involved, what does it look like, what, what sorts of things can happen when people come to see you? Okay, so I don't actually call myself a sound therapist. I call myself a listening therapist. And the, why this is important is if we go back to the biology, at about day five or six, the first cells in the organ of hearing are laid down super early, before the other senses. There's hardly anything made, you know. Day one, we, you know, we go from one cell to two. Day six, we're starting to build the ear. By about 16 weeks, it's operating, which is why fetuses um, respond to sound, particularly mum's voice or slamming door or whatever. Um, and that's why it's, it's sometimes called a gateway to all the other senses. Um, Without, without hearing, we, we can't interact. It's very difficult to interact. We can't communicate, can't understand what people are saying, those who are profoundly deaf. There were some experiments in France in the last century where if you, if you deny adult sound, you can make them go mad. So sound is really important. It's, it's, it's a pathway into the brain that resonates with me because we can use music and music is fun. Music is embedded in every culture. And so I use the pathway, I use the tool of music and play and movement and vision and balance. It's primarily music to get in and restructure the brain. And we restructure the brain in, in a gentle way because music is gentle. And, and the brain restructures automatically in a way that is meaningful and useful to the client because you filter it through your own senses. And when we have somebody who's um, overloading, unable to cope with the sensory flows coming in, I mean, this is what I say to my arms. How do you know you're, Sammy, how do you know you're here listening to me? Mm. How do you know? It's that, it's that, it's that age-old question of, of that, you know, no, 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 I want your own you to cognitive process, right? I want you to answer my question. How do you know you're here with me and Patricia? My, 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 well, I, I probably bring some spiritual ideas into that as well, but you know, <laughs> the, the, the brain is obviously taking on board information and then my, there are different parts of the brain that is processing that and then feeding that information back through um, to sort of gauge my understanding. But um, I, I sort of have a, a spiritual bent where I believe that the, the body and the brain has that physical presence in the physical world and your soul is, is, you know, that sort of other level that's a level underneath that's sort of underlying a lot of what you're experiencing. Um, so the presence idea is interesting to me because it's, is, it, is it purely my body that's present here or is it, is it a combination of both? Um, it doesn't really matter, but if I break it down to really simple concepts that all of my clients can understand, I'll say, you're sitting on a chair, you've got your elbow on the desk, you're looking at me, you're listening to me, you're filtering out the background noise, you understand about where you are positioned in space because you know your elbow is it's on the table. Now, some of the clients I see do not know where their elbow is. Mm. So they put it down as if on the desk, but it's not on the desk, and they slip off and fall off their chair. Or they're finding the sensation of the chair under them uncomfortable, or oh. the labels on their clothes, or the, the feel of their material, or the hum of something 
in the next door room and that's what grabs their attention. Now what you're doing by knowing that you're here with me and Patricia, you're actually processing all that stuff into some meaningful understanding about what's happening in this second. Now for many of the kids that we see, that doesn't happen. So they're looking away. So they're retreating into Lego because it's a safe space and they don't have to interact with the rest of the overworld. Yeah. And um, it's something we take for granted as adults when we're normal, neurotypical. That to process the second we're in now is meaningful. But for many clients, it's not. And it's about walking in their shoes. And it's also about being the kid. So I've got a little painting behind me, which just happens to be there. That, that's a picture my father painted of me when I was about eight. I've never had any trouble keeping in touch with my inner child. <laughs> I love that. I can vouch for that. I can vouch for that. That's very, very true. <laughs> Tell me, uh, maybe Patricia, you could give me or the listeners, I suppose, a little bit of insight into um, what was your experience of, you know, being a mum coming in to, to see Harry? What, what was your experience like and what sorts of things did you notice um, for Marco that, that really, you know, that changed across the, the time that you were seeing Harry? Um, I think, well, for me initially, it was the way that Harry uh, made me feel in that, in that initial consultation so he always he always does ask the mums like what they and he's right most of the time it is mums that are coming in to see him and he does ask them what they want to you know what they're hoping um to get out of it for their child what they want for their child what their hopes are um my memory of it too is that he he asked me quite a lot of questions that probably I'd never really been asked before. It was almost like he wanted to know more and understand more than, um, you know, other um, therapists that maybe Marco and I had been to to see together before for Marco, if that if that makes sense. Mm. Uh, but the other thing too that really struck me, and you know how he was talking about as in a child, was the relationship he pretty much struck up with Marco straight away. So uh, engineering that. Tr- trust really quickly making him feel really comfortable and it it was it was tricky because in that first consult too you know Harry's doing some testing he's um doing you know with the 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 auditory testing and things like that um you know getting doing um some balance uh exercises things like that seeing how the person balances that so to get that trust that 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 quickly um you know is difficult is is hard so that was for me, it was the the, the, the comfort, the understanding, um, you know, no judgment, just let's see, let's do, let's do. And he also to the explanation, like the really, really detailed explanation of what we were doing, what the testing was for, what results we were going to see afterwards. And then when, once we have those results, how we can work with those results to then, you know, um, to then move forward and to, to be able to help the person. Mm. It really mm. triggers me to wonder, Harry, how, how do you think you cultivate that? Because it sounds like it's, you know, I mean, it, it becomes quite an art form, doesn't it, making people feel comfortable. But um, mm. I wonder what, what are some of the key things? Because I think it's important that 
if we all understand how to help other people feel comfortable, then we can really use that just in our day-to-day -day life, when we're out in the community, when we're, you know, in our workplaces, when we're, um, you know, meeting, meeting other people and all that kind of thing. Understanding what's involved in that, I think, can really help to bring us all together as opposed to, you know, feeling like we're not sure what to say and what's the right thing to say and what's not. Because I think sometimes, um, especially for neurotypical people, um, because we don't have that experience and we don't understand a lot of the time what the behaviours mean, that we, we sort of, our first reaction is a fear response as opposed to, you know, one of understanding or compassion. So um, have you got any tips for us around that? Just one word, love. It's that simple. You know, I love people. I love meeting new people. And in, in that first meeting, I don't, really have to do much with the brain to make that connection with the child. It's just about being totally available for them and, and having that attitude of love. Mm. And so if it means getting down on my knees to be at the same level as them, that's what I do. And um, trying to pay attention to the the stress signals that they'll show, and they're often very subtle, but I'm aware of them. So if I see that happening, well, we'll, we'll just have a pause and make a few jokes or have a bit of a play or bounce a ball or something until we get them out of that stress response. But in terms of, say, the, the boy I had on Friday, you know, touch is an awesome way to reassure somebody that it's actually okay. Mm. And, um, yeah. you know, Sunny, who's um, a mutual friend with Patricia, um, has given us a wonderful tool to settle people down using touch out of fight and flight. And, and, and it involves putting your hand on the chest at the front and, and in the middle of the back and pressing firmly and that can, get, that can get a child out of what might be a complete meltdown if you get in there quick enough. Yeah. Love that. Thank you. I think um, I feel like there will be lots of people listening going, my golly, I think this is what I need. I need some, I need some sound therapy. I need some listening therapy. Um, who, who do you think benefits the most from it? Who, who, what, like, what is the, you know, what is your general client base? Who are the types of people that you would see? What, what kinds of things can you support with? Well, like every therapist, I started out being able to help everybody, which is actually true, but it's incredibly inefficient. It's impossible to market. You get no cut through at all. And actually, after a while, you start realising that some clients are a little bit more enjoyable than others. <laughs> and so what I started doing was, you know, if you watch a Toyota ad, you probably watch TV and you've seen the Toyota jump, where kids, you know, clients jump in the air with Toyota joy. I started writing down what the characteristics were of clients after I'd seen them and I felt like doing a Toyota jump. Mm -hmm because it's not that obvious. And I started writing them down on a couple of bits of paper. And in the end, what came to me was an understanding that what I, the, per, the person that I liked working with most was bright and sensitive and creative and creative. And 
they're people like me, so it's my tribe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we have the most fun together, so that's who I market to. Because and then I obviously really they're going to get the best benefits out of it. That's right. I really don't want to, Yeah, I don't want to see anybody else. But if they come, yes, I'll be polite and we'll we'll do what we do together. But we're gonna. I'm gonna be the most productive with that group, whether they're small, whether they're two or fifty or eighty, doesn't matter. It's the same brain. It's the same heart. It's the same soul. Just a bit more experience. Mm. <laughs> a few more yes. wrinkles. <laughs> I feel that. And tell me about the kinds of differences that you see. Like what, you know, you, you have a, a client who's presenting. What are the what are some of the difficulties that they're often presenting with? And then what sort of differences are you seeing, um, you know, after working with them? Mums usually bring clients in for two reasons. One, they're struggling at school academically or behaviourally. And... So it's usually embedded around literacy or numeracy somewhere. Or in some cases with private schools, homework, which is, you know, completely, in my view, completely unnecessary. <laughs> I will be right on board with you there. It is for, we're, we're there as well. <laughs> and, the, and the evidence would support me, but, you know, schools love loading them up. Um, so they come with the struggle around that. You know, my little boy on Friday, well, he can't talk. You know, so very hard. Um, global developmental delay, almost everything is, is delayed. So, so what I said to the mum was, you know, if, it, if in the end we can get him speaking, that will be wonderful. Makes my, makes my year. But it's going to be a long road. So there are no silver bullets for any of my clients. We have to do the work. And if they've got global developmental delay, it is years of work. And it's work on the gut. And it's work in the auditory system. It's not just one thing. So one of the reasons why I do lots of the things that Patricia mentioned in an assessment is because it's very unusual to see a client with evidence in the outside world that they're struggling. It's very unusual to see them with one cause. There's usually multiple causes. There may have been one cause at the beginning, but that then... You know, it's like building a brick wall. If, if the first row is not built properly, well, you're going to get cracks further up. What, what do I typically see when we're starting to get traction? What, the one thing that comes up first is improved self-esteem. Mm. And often improved posture. And then, then the happiness. They become happier. Mm. And if that starts happening, I know we're on the right track. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's that's um, really important for me in my work too. Is the um, the improvement in self esteem and self confidence, and then as you see that happening, you can you know that you're on the right track. That's absolutely right. Yeah, Harry, I wanted to ask you too. Remember you telling me that there's one question you always and I can't remember what it is. One question you always ask mums in the first time you meet when they were there with their child and then you ask the same question at the end yes I do. is that right yes right I isn't do. it i do what's I the question them, i ask and this is such a hard question to ask canberra mums i ask the mums how they've come into an assessment with their child typically and i've asked them how does this make you feel 
and they will tell me what they think usually. I'll say, that's great, fantastic. I now know what you think. What I want to know is how this makes you feel. And I'm, with some mums, I have to ask it three times. We're not, we're not conditioned to answer that question, are we, Harry? We're conditioned to answer based on logic and, you know, answers that we think people want us to hear, like that we think people want to hear um, and not actually connecting in to where actually, where are we at and how are we feeling about this? Because we're, we're generally taught to just kind of push that stuff down and we just, we won't talk well, about it, that. It also involves tears. Mm. That's the other thing. Mm. So we get the tissue box mm. out. And that's, you know, part of a good assessment for me, making the mum cry. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> because you have to release it, right? It's, it's, it's pent up here. And you yeah. often as a mum, I think, you know, so much of our time is spent future projecting. You know, when our, when our child's mm. behaving a certain way, you know, we will often react in that moment because we are thinking, what does this mean for their future? Not just dealing with the behaviour in the moment right now and looking for what's going on behind that behaviour. And so a lot of what we talk about is, um, you know, is reframing behaviour as communication as opposed to, you know, something that's wrong or bad or, or you know, like getting rid of the word misbehaviour because actually, no, it's just communicating a need and it's the most effective way that a child can communicate the need to you in that moment. And so we need to look what's behind that to, you know, to really support them there and then their behaviour will go away. So, um yeah, I think that really speaks to that, you know, supporting the mums to break that, that down, that pattern down, because it, it is really, it's hard. It, like I still find myself, I know this stuff and I still find myself doing it with my own children that, you know, sometimes when they, when they, you know, they lash out at their sibling and you're like, oh my gosh, they're going to be, you know, whatever you're telling yourself about what that means about them being violent or not being able to make friends mm -hmm. or, or, you know, on and on and on it goes. Um, I just, yeah, I love that approach that we, we need to start there because once we can see that for ourselves that actually we're holding a lot of meaning, you know, around this behaviour or what this assessment might mean or what the labels are that our child has, we hold so much meaning around that and that's really socially driven and it's, and it's often driven by a medical model that says it's, it's, it's wrong as opposed to mm. different. It is socially mm. driven and that's the key thing that many of the children I see on the spectrum probably would have been fine if they'd been born around the time of Michelangelo in the Renaissance in Italy or somewhere. So the development, yeah, um, the development parameters that we're looking for, you know, are culturally appropriate. And I'll say, okay, you know, um, I'll do the testing and I'll say, well, this is the norm, but it's a norm that allows us to survive in this society, in these classrooms. Mm. Blah, blah, blah. It's not, it's not right or wrong. It's just, it's just mm. expedient. Mm. But the reason I ask mum how they feel is because they bring their children in because of the love they have for them, mm. not because of what they think. Mm. Yeah. And I, I need to get to that in order to understand why they really come. And it's not about what they think, it's about what they feel. Now, Sammy, Harry's journey to how he got to um, what he's doing now, or what he's been doing for the last, is it, how many years is it now, Harry, that you've been doing this? 18 years, believe me. 18 years. <laughs> his, so his journey is quite amazing. So I would like to invite Harry to share a bit of this because I think it's also really important for our audience 
to hear how Harry got to where he is. So Harry used to be an economist, okay, <laughs> which you would never think. So he used to be an economist and, yeah, now he's a listening therapist. The other thing too is that Harry has his own um, journey with creativity as well. And um, as you and I um, both don't appreciate many of the clients that we work with, and this is, um, you know, I, I'm always perpetuating this about neurodiversity is that often um, the pe neurodiverse people are very creative, you know, so often quite artistic or quite musical. So Harry is a sculptor, so he sculpts as well, and he has some amazing sculptures that he's done. So, um, yeah, so Harry, would you like to share with the audience a little bit of your journey and how you got to becoming a listening therapist? Sure, so I, I had a very simple rule of thumb when I studied, was that I'd try and pick subjects, if I could, that I enjoyed. I loved economics, I loved the patterns, I loved the, you know, the, the order, the framework, the structure. So I enrolled in economics at Monash because it was the only university that offered a good economics course without the need for accounting. And so I learned my craft and, and I practiced economics. And economics is really a study of human behavior around models as, as illustrated by how they spend their money. So I was working as a director in treasury in Darwin and I got, got very sick and I couldn't get better. I had multiple specialists looking after me, multiple homeopaths and energetic medicine people and an osteopath in Canberra. And in the end, I, I realized that coming down to Canberra to work in my brother-in-law's clinic, sorry, to, to be treated in my brother-in-law's clinic, I was getting better. I went back to Darwin, I got worse. So we left Darwin and I boosted my immune system and with Dr. Pravel's help and recovered. And while I was there, he was on a program, a very intensive program, 15 day program. And people come from interstate or overseas for this program. And he'd bought a new bit of equipment and I was using it. So he asked me to use it on these kids. And there was one kid that was giving him a lot of trouble, just non-compliant, just not doing it, not playing the game, just not, not a good thing when the mum's paying five grand and moved into state to go on this program. So I just simply looked at him. I think he was 13 or 14. And I thought, well, what can I say to him? He said, okay, look, you do this. You'll become a chick magnet. And he was potty in my hands, of course. <laughs> Straight to a teenage boy's heart. <laughs> exactly. So at the, end of the, at the end of the program, when I got better, you know, um, Maxwell said to me, a bit of a throwaway line, well, look, if there isn't a job, you can't find a job, there might be one for you here. But he, he asked, what on earth did you say to that boy, you know? <laughs> so I told him and his eyes glazed over, oh, no, you didn't say that to him, did you? <laughs> it's all about speaking the language, you know? and resonating, walking in their shoes. So, so in the end, I have a very good degree. I've got a first class on a degree, you know, and I've worked in lots of really good places. I've worked as a director in Colesmire and places like that. I couldn't get an interview in Canberra. 
And, you know, life sometimes gives you messages. And you listen or you don't. And, you know, lots of people don't listen. They end up with a heart attack. So I listened to this. We went back. We decided to, to work together. Well, then the next question was, what on earth am I going to do? And he'd always had a gap in the clinic around listening therapy. So he said, go over and learn, learn this from my friend, Dr. Ron Minson in Denver. So that's what I did over the next three or four years. And then I did a double advanced diploma in, in um, wellness consultancy and nutritional medicine, just as if I didn't have enough to do. <laughs> 50, 53, I started learning biochem, which nearly killed me. Wow. And I worked really hard. Um, but I reinvented myself again. And, and I discovered that working with the kids, with music, it was like coming home. Mm. It, on one level, to do the work was really easy. On another level, you know, writing the reports at night was really difficult. But it's, it's been enduringly fun. So that's my journey. And, and, and the core skill that I use that carried over from economics is about pattern recognition. So, yeah, we have a, we have a child who comes in and what's really driving the parents mad is that he won't sit still at dinner time. You know, this is the crime that's going to cause them to divorce him or send him away to boarding school. And so, you know, I mean, I'm enduringly curious, as Maxwell is, and I think any good therapist is enduringly curious. So the curiosity propels me to try and find the reason why and, and then to unravel the pattern of the behaviour. Yeah. That's an incredible story, Harry. I love that so much. Yeah. And, and I love also that, you know, it, it's never too late. Like it just, you know, it doesn't matter. And, and I, I love that you, it sounds like you have just always followed your passion. So economics was a passion. Mm. And then when something else piqued your curiosity, you went, well, let's just tug on that thread and let's see what's there. And mm. I think that's, mm. you know, that's just a beautiful life lesson for everybody to, to be able to just do that. I think that's incredible. Life is for living yeah. and to follow what makes you happy with courage is, is the best thing anybody can mm. do. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Harry, now if people uh, want to get in contact with you um, because they can work with you um, over Zoom as well as face-to-face -face, um, and bearing them, you know, um, so you are physically located in Queensland, uh, but they can certainly, they can work with you over Zoom as well. So if people want to get in contact with you um, and um, see and learn more about your program, what's the best way for them to do that? An easy way is to go onto my website mm -hmm. um, and it's www.listen4life.com. And if they go that, yeah, if they go onto that, yeah. they can actually um, complete a scorecard for themselves, which gives us a, gives me a very uh, me and and the person who fills it a very accurate idea about how well they're making sense of what they hear. And once they've done that, then they can they can have a video call with me, and we can work out whether whether we're a good fit. Hmm. Um, mm. 
I made a mistake the other day. I was updating my website. <laughs> and I, yes. I, put, I put Queensland in and did all that. And I actually put my address in on the contact me form. And I won't Your old address? Yeah, no, my, new, my complete address. I thought, oh, oh. I probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> Or your clients will be knocking on your door. (laughs) Got the laptop out and took out the number of the road, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, before we wrap up, Harry, I did have a a couple of, um, I suppose, broader questions to ask you. Sure. Um, You know, obviously, your, your sound therapy is such a, it sounds like such a brilliant tool to be able to use. And I wonder if you have any ideas on how we can incorporate some of that into our, I'm very big on education. So particularly in our education system, but perhaps you might, you know, think of ways to do it more broadly as well. Um, But how can we start to incorporate some of this so that, you know, the children in our education systems who would benefit from it can access it more often? Okay. So we, we ran a number of experiments in Canberra where we had listening therapy embedded in the classroom. And in one of the private schools, Bergman Anglican, we actually, they ran a third of the entire student population through it. And they had a very simple, we used very basic equipment. There were CD players, CDs. We had about, um, I think we set up four or five CD players with a couple of splitters, a splitter on each, so we could run five or six kids at the time. And that, there was just a roster for when kids left their class and did their listening. But this requires a champion in the school, and it usually gets down to one person, and in every case, that one person got burnt out. So unless we get somebody like some, a philanthropist who could fund this, the problem is, I mean, it's different in different places, but in Canberra, the problem always got back to the psychologists who wanted more evidence. And even if you were setting up a study to generate more evidence, they would often white-hand it on the basis that the modality didn't have enough peer-reviewed evidence. And so, you know, it's absolute bullshit. It really is. It's got nothing to do with the welfare of the children. Mm. It's got more to do with their own egos and protecting their turf. Mm. So, you know, that is one way to do it, but it's a really hard road unless you have a champ. Well, even, it's a really hard road and you need a champion and they will get burnt out. Mm. Um, the other way is just to um, get, we, there, are, there are home systems, but they're quite expensive. Mm. Um, we get lots of people on NDIS, with NDIS funding buying them. But, you know, I have to say that the health model in Australia is about building faster ambulances. There, there is, no support for preventative work. Mm. In fact, there's less and less every year, despite, despite what the politicians are saying. Um, and, and the whole system has been engulfed by, by pharmaceuticals that make some people large amounts of money. Mm. 
and quick fixes and and it's, it's almost backwards isn't it it's it's looking at how can we help the problem when it's a problem not how can we stop the problem in the first place and how or can we support yeah. things changing in the first place sure and one, one of the points i i tell all my clients you know if if you want to target the symptom go somewhere else mm. i'm actually not interested mm. yeah mm. And then it's clear, it's on the table. And if they're still there in half an hour, we know we're the same <laughs> they're on, You're on the same page. I love that. I suppose my sort of final um, follow-up question to that is um, what are some of the main changes you would like to see in our education system? Patricia and I talk about this a lot and there's many, <laughs> but maybe from your perspective, if you could tell us, um, you know, what, okay. what would you really love to see? Just a couple of things. I would like to see double and triple car classrooms banned. They're atrocious. I don't know why they're doing it. it. It makes no sense to me because the noise level and the, dist mm. the potential for distraction is amplifying. That's the first thing. The second thing is there's a, there's a guy called Julian Treasure, Treasure who, who does a whole lot of consulting work around um, noise levels in buildings in Europe. And, and it will be so nice if education departments started building classrooms that were quiet. And it, according to Julian, he's got a couple of TED talks on this. Um, it doesn't cost any more to build a classroom that is going to be quiet. It just, you do it differently. And one of the things that tips kids into um, Avoidance, distraction, disruption is too much noise. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so that, would, that would be my top two. The, the, the third thing, yeah, there is a third thing, and that would be wonderful if teachers were paid to do what they do well and not promoted into management jobs when they're bloody hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> but, so I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a story. In America, it's a different culture. So when I was working for Colesmire, I got to know the, one of the suit buyers. And he was in middle America and needed a belt. Okay, so he, he you know, a medium-sized town. He walked into a men's clothing store to buy his belt. And as he was walking back out to his hire car, he realized he bought a suit, a pair of shoes, a belt, a shirt, a tie. And he said to himself, WTF, what has just happened? Put the stuff in the car and he walked back into, into the shop and he said, what just happened? <laughs> and the guy said, I'm the best suit salesman in this country. That's what happened. <laughs> and I get paid a lot of money. And the difference between what happens in the States and here is that no one, that in, in our culture, we don't like paying people large amounts of money when they do things really well. Mm. That's the difference. So if you want to earn a little bit more money and you're a good teacher, you become a principal, mm. which are terrible. And we lose a good mm. teacher. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 
It's true. And, you know, in countries like Finland where teachers are very highly paid because they're actually recognised for the work that they do and how valuable they are and how necessary they are. And, yeah, yeah. And so then their job, you know, they're they're, um, remunerated well for the amount of effort that they put in, which, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so valuing, valuing people, valuing teachers. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that that is it for today. Sammy, do you think, do you have any more questions for I you? don't. I think Harry? everything that I wanted to, wanted to hear, and I thank Harry very much for, for sharing so openly with us your story and, um, you know, a bit about what you do because I found it fascinating. And um, we'll make sure that we pop the, your website and um, any other links you'd like us to pop in the description so that people can come and find you and follow you and, um, and get in contact with you if they think it might be helpful for either themselves or their children. Yes, I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn. They're they're the two main ones, yeah. We'll have that all in the description notes then. Brilliant. Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you guys. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Nurturing Neurodiversity with me, Patricia Falchetta from Social Living Solutions. And me, Sammy Ann from Map the Maze. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe through your favourite podcast platform. To continue the conversation, come in and find us on our socials. You can find me on Facebook at Sammy Ann Map the Maze or check out my website www.sammyann.com. And you can find me on Facebook too on Social Living Solutions or also on my personal page, Patricia Falchetta. You can also find me on Insta at Patricia Falchetta or my website, which is www.sociallivingsolutions.com.au. All the links to find us are in the description and we hope you'll join us again next time. Where we'll continue to learn how to create a truly inclusive world for us and for our children.